0: Welcome Inside Appalachia, I'm Jessica Lilly. This week, we've put together a special holiday episode about seasonal traditions, from annual get-togethers.
1: We're gathered here on the Feast of St. Nicholas to
0: think about generosity. Two traditional recipes. You know, I think rosettes were
2: pretty common, especially in, you know, in this part of Appalachia because you had so many immigrants coming, not just from Switzerland, but from, you know, Germany or Austria, Hungary, other places where, you know, you see this Rosette tradition show up. And
0: music that says it's the holidays.
3: The Christmas Eve service, I think, is so special. You know, where they, everyone sings Silent Night in German with by candlelight, and it's I think it's amazing. I love the fact that Helvetia keeps this tradition going.
0: You'll find these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia, I'm Jessica Lilly. Holidays in these mountains have always been special. In Appalachia, it's usually a time to go home or carry on traditions of home in a new way. On today's show, we'll journey down memory lane, celebrating unique traditions of food, music, and even the sometimes infamous holiday photos. We'll even share a few traditions that might be a new way for your family to celebrate the season. And as it turns out, three stories in the show have a connection to the tiny Swiss immigrant town of Helvetia in Randolph County, West Virginia, which has done a pretty good job of preserving unique traditions. Most major holidays around the world revolve around eating special foods together. And the memories that come with the traditions aren't always about the taste. Health reporter Kara Lofton and fifth grader Grace Harper explore how food and holiday traditions help bring families together.
4: At her home in Candleton, West Virginia, 11-year-old Grace Harper is helping her mom make almond cookies, like the ones her great-grandmother used to make.
5: Open up the bag of almonds. And we need about a cup, I believe. Let me look.
4: Grace was part of a semester-long youth reporting project between West Virginia Public Broadcasting and about a dozen Valley Elementary School 5th graders. Before making cookies, she interviewed her parents about some of their favorite holiday food traditions. Did you make,
6: like with your grandma, any of these sweets? And how did it make you feel?
5: Well, every time I walked into Mama's house during the holiday season... It was very warm, cozy. Mamo had lights at the windows. Um, you would smell fresh baked goods in the kitchen with Christmas music. Bing Crosby playing "White Christmas" in the background.
6: I'm
7: dreaming of a white
5: Christmas. And it was just always a a fun memory that I always had. That's Grace's mom,
4: Carrie. For many people, food and the act of preparing certain foods are nostalgic. Chris Wharton is a professor of nutrition at Arizona State University.
2: Food represents a sort of defining narrative about us, and it's a connection to our families and our culture. But we convene around meals every single day, you know, as a a matter of course. Um, But also we do it certainly for special occasions. And so we celebrate with food for all these reasons, everything you know, from birth through to death.
4: He said on one level, there's the primary sense of security of having food at all. And then there's the pleasure we get in indulging in special foods around the holidays. And
2: doing these things, I think, amplifies the specialness of events that mark key moments in our
8: lives.
4: Denise Coppleton is a professor of sociology at the College of Rockport in New York. She says food also plays the role of establishing ritual and, connection within a family unit. Like the Harper, she says, her mother used to bake cookies around the holidays.
9: And it's something that I can reconnect to the past, to that time when I was doing it with my mom and my sister, even though they're not present with me when I'm baking with my my daughters. It calls to mind and it forges this connection with the family of the past and the family that's currently, you know, that I currently have. It's not just coming together to eat, but it's what you also do when you come together to eat, right? You renew your sense of family. You share your activities of the day together. And it's those things that we often do over a meal or through um, the sharing of food or the preparation of food that really um, helps to define what family is as opposed to some other group.
4: After interviewing her parents, Grace rolled up her sleeves and began to help her mom with the cookies.
5: Get yourself a hand like this, okay? Just put it up in a ball, and then we're just going to go just like this. Put them, I'd say, maybe about that far apart. And I feel like hanging out with family,
6: especially, like, with your grandparents, because, you know, they won't be around for long, is really special to me because um, I get to make, like... For the traditions and stuff like that, I can pass it down to my kids and tell them, like, this is what I do with my grandma. And, like, if I would stay the night with them, I would do
4: this with my grandma, and I would always help her in the kitchen. Grace's dad, Tim, sat in the corner and watched while his wife and daughter make cookies together.
10: It's important that we don't lose what we have captured and what we have through generations of uh, family and if we just forget about it, then they, they pass away and they're forgotten. So we, we do these things a lot of times to keep those memories alive because uh, they're important. And so we pass them
4: on. And so from one generation to the next, dough becomes cookies.
5: So let's go ahead and get the pan out. And families pass on the foods that
0: bind them together. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Carol Lofton. Other students in the 5th grade Fayette County, West Virginia class shared their favorite memories of the holidays and will share more of the stories throughout the show. Children in the tiny town of Helvetia, West Virginia, celebrate traditions that date back hundreds of years. Even at Christmas time, the town has its own way of celebrating the season. This time of year, you can discover their unique heritage and hear tales of St. Nicholas, sweet treats, square dancing, a potluck dinner, and perhaps best of all, Gritzybon, a special kind of holiday bread. West Virginia Public Broadcasting's Liz McCormick brings us the story.
11: In the mountains of Randolph County, West Virginia, is the small Swiss-German town of Helvetia. This tiny, remote town is rich with Swiss-German tradition, including the Feast of St. Nicholas, held at the Helvetia Community Hall. The feast is one of the town's smallest events during the year and averages about 25 to 30 attendees, but it's no less a favorite for locals. It's based off an old tradition in Germany and Switzerland, but the Feast of St. Nicholas has only been held in Helvetia for the past 20 years. Local resident Eleanor Betler was in charge of the event this year.
1: We're gathered here on the Feast of St. Nicholas to think about generosity because he was a very generous person and we carry that through by teaching and we teach to make the Gritzy Bon and we decorate cookies and we have fun together. Well, this is just a dough, I need six teaspoons
11: of salt and some sugar so I've got to do that. And the Gritzi Bon is loosely translated as dough boys. That's Anna Chandler. Here in Helvetia's community hall kitchen, Anna preps a large silver mixing bowl for making the special holiday bread, Gritsiban. I think I've got everything in it that's supposed to be. Anna lives in Morgantown, but her father's side of the family is from Helvetia. So she says she always makes a point to attend local events. Over the past three years, she's been making the dough for the Gritsiban with Eleanor's guidance. Here's Anna again. This is the, it's called Hebel, H-E-B-E-L. That's the yeast dough, so this is the like the starter. So you get it going first, so the yeast is active and going at it, and then you add it to everything else. And then After mixing in all the ingredients, Anna needs the dough until it becomes soft, but still firm enough to mold and shape into bread people. First time I made this or worked with anybody to make it, I thought it was going to be a really sweet dough, like cinnamon roll dough. It's not, it's just a a rich, because it's got the eggs and butter in it, uh, yeast dough. It's very straightforward and when the kids get done decorating, we, we decorate with raisins and citron and stuff like that so that it's, it's not sweet by any means, it's just bread. Upstairs in the main room of the community hall, a small group of kids and their parents make Christmas crafts and play games together while they wait on the dough. Decorating the Gritsiban with children is part of the tradition.
12: You're welcome.
11: Back in the kitchen, Eleanor and Anna lay out baking sheets for each person, butter knives, and round, sticky dough balls for each child and parent to work with. At the center of the table is a tray of flour, a couple bowls of egg wash, and dried fruit to use for decorating. This
1: is the head, so just kind of take it from the sides and make him a neck. All right, and then make some shoulders.
11: Eleanor guides everyone as they shape their dough.
1: Then take your knife and make his arms, or her arms. You can make a man or a woman.
11: After everyone's gritsy ban is decorated, they're left to rise for about 15 minutes, and then they're ready to be baked.
8: Are you done? Okay, you can go play, okay? Go wash your hands. Go wash your hands.
11: Helvetia's population has dropped dramatically over the decades, as people have moved away for job opportunities and other reasons. Yet Eleanor says she doesn't think the town or its traditions will ever disappear. The annual events are unique and a big draw for visitors, she says, but also many people who have family connections here are proud of where they come from, and the events bring people home. Everybody does everything together. And I think that's what keeps
1: almost all of our traditions alive, is that we do things as families and as community, church community, family community, community, community,
11: and community and family mean everything to us here. Everything. Making Gritzyban from scratch is just one aspect of Helvetia's Feast of St. Nicholas event. Residents also gather that day for a visit from Santa Claus and to hear the story of St. Nick, a potluck dinner, and... Okay, we're ready to square dance here. ...a community square dance. (laughs) For Inside Appalachia, I'm Liz McCormick in Helvetia, West Virginia.
0: Now, that holiday tradition seems like something that might be worth adopting in my family. Maybe to replace decorating cookies. After all, when Santa visits our house, I don't think he'd mind to get a decorated piece of bread rather than a sugary cookie. If you want to join in this celebration, we've posted the recipe for Gritzy Bond bread on our website at wvpublic.org. And be sure to let us know how it turns out.
9: My name is Brayden Arthur. I'm 10 years old, and I live in Camden, Holler. My favorite tradition is going to my mama's every Christmas Eve and we open presents and we eat dinner and everybody's there and we just have a good time.
0: We're going to take a little break. When we come back, we'll hear a story about the making of another holiday staple, smoked ham. And we'll also learn about a way to get outside during the holidays to create perhaps a new family tradition. You're listening to Inside Appalachia. I'm Jessica Lilly.
5: My name is David Gerald. I live in the town of Montgomery and I'm 11 years old. Every Christmas Eve we play tricks on each other. Last Christmas Eve my grandma wrapped a gift card in plaster and duct tape and it took me a really long time to get unwrapped. These are my favourite traditions because we get to have laughs and spend a lot of fun times with each other.
6: Go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere. Go tell it on the that Jesus Christ is born.
10: Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia, with career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.
0: On this week's special holiday episode, we're talking about traditions and, of course, finding many of them at the supper table. The next holiday tradition is often the centerpiece of the table during Christmas. Cured country ham. Inside Appalachia, contributor Fred Salzman visited with a man in Southeast Tennessee who cures country hams the old way, a process involving many months and knowledge accumulated over generations.
13: It's a pathetic hole in the wall, cinder block building stuck on the side of US Highway 411 in Madisonville, Tennessee. Alan Benton
10: is describing what he calls his shop. Out of that unassuming building, Come some of the world's best country hams and bacon. Alan Benton cures his country hams the same way his
13: grandparents did back in Scott County, Virginia. In fact, it's the original family recipe from the old log smokehouse behind the house I was born in there in Scott County. That's what my grandparents used to to cure their meat. But my grandmother Benton, Sally Benton, used this recipe in that old log smokehouse, and I craved that product from the time I was a little bitty boy. I took it for granted until I got out on my own and couldn't find that product anymore. It was like a step back in time where my grandparents lived. And I tell people where I was born, you have to almost look straight up to see daylight. Those old hills come down that steep, and they raised everything they ate. Neither side of the family owned a car, truck, or tractor. They farmed with horses and mules. They had their own milk cow. Uh, chickens. They raised hogs because hogs were very inexpensive and easy to raise, of course. I remember when they put electricity through there. I remember when they put water in the houses. But I remember all that very vividly and uh, I cherish those memories. If I could sell my memories for a million dollars, I wouldn't even think about it because that's who I am. And I cherish the memories of my grandparents and the way they lived and I'm so proud of the heritage because those people they had to be very resilient and tough just to survive. How would you describe, the?
10: if you're doing tasting notes, how would you describe the flavor of your country ham? What are you looking for in a good country ham?
13: Well, I want a, I want a ham that you can taste the salt but doesn't overpower you with the salt. I also want that good pronounced cured flavor that's characteristic of country ham, that little whang that it gets, the country ham has to have a little whang, a little bit of uh, character to it, and uh, that's what we're looking for in my country hams. What causes that or creates
10: that whang?
13: It's the, uh, the, the best way I can describe it. Age, of course, is the primary characteristic, but the fluctuation in temperature. If a ham goes through what I call the summer sweats, if it cools down at night and heats up during the day, that helps to give it that characteristic flavor that I so crave in my products. What's your favorite way of cooking country ham? I fry the ham fat, get my skillet hot with the grease from that rendered fat, and then I just take a slice of ham, lay it in there for 35 to 40 seconds on one side, 35 to 40 seconds on the other side, take it up and serve it. Most people today way overcook country ham, and it's not good. It's at its best when it's slightly undercooked as opposed to overcooked. I know one time you told me you used uh, cola. If it's any at all too strong in flavor, like too salty or whatever, a pinch of that brown sugar in the grease or a little bit of cola in the grease, uh, not Diet Coke, but the kind with sugar in it, will help to neutralize the effect of that salt a little bit. When you fry a country ham, you don't waste the leavings,
10: the particles that are left over in the black iron skillet. Tell me how you
13: make red-eye gravy. Well, first off, to make red-eye gravy, you need some fat on the ham. Many of the hams today don't have much fat, so I save ham fat at my place to make my red-eye gravy. I'll fry the fat and render the fat to get the grease, and I'll lay a slice of country ham in there for about 35-40 seconds on one side, 35-40 seconds on the other side, and take it up. It's ready to serve. But to make the red-eye gravy, I'll add just a pinch of brown sugar, and maybe, depending on how much gravy I'm trying to make, maybe a half of a cup of brewed coffee, and I'll turn my skillet up a little bit higher and take a spoon and stand there and stir that till I reduce that liquid down almost to where it was before I added the coffee to it. Pour that up, and that's red-eye gravy, which is incredible on grits or a biscuit. Very much a dish out of hard times. Very much a dish out of hard times, yes, as all gravy, I'm sure, was originally. Why is curing meat rewarding to you? You know, when I got into this business, Fred, I I thought I wanted to go to law school, and I was just going to cure country hams and bacon long enough to get admitted to law school. But after about six months, I found myself really enjoying what I was doing. And I thought, I'll just do this as long as it lasts, because I didn't think it would last over a year or two. But I found myself really enjoying it. And today, I think I get the most gratification when some old-timer walks in my place and they say, Oh, my goodness, I've not had bacon like this or ham like this since I was a child and my granddaddy did it. That makes me want to get up the next morning and come back to work and do it all over again. And at my place, I'll have people quite often ask me, what are you doing new? And my answer is always the same, basically nothing.
10: Alan Benton is the 2017 winner of the Governor's Arts Award for Folklife Heritage in Tennessee. His country hams are cured anywhere from 10 to 26 months at Benton's Smoky Mountain Country Hams in Madisonville, Tennessee. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Fred Saussman.
1: I'm Quayden McGee, and I'm from Ponto, West Virginia. My favorite Christmas tradition is dinner because the juicy ham and all the other fine food my mom and my mom make. It's quite special because most of my family come to one house and
0: get all the food and meet up and meet everyone. Another winter holiday staple, of course, is St. Nick himself. But if you think about it, Santa isn't exactly kid-friendly. He's a big, loud character who can make capturing the traditional holiday photo a trial, especially if your child has special needs. Reporter Mary Meehan brings us this story.
9: So I'm not usually one to name-drop, but my brother, Pat Meehan, is Santa Claus. Sitting in his home office fresh from work, he's wearing black suspenders and a red T-shirt. There are at least six other Santa outfits in his closet. So give me your very best... Big and bold Santa.
3: (laughs) Ho, ho, ho! Merry Christmas!
9: Holy cow, my ears are blown out. (laughs) (laughs) Pat says it's no wonder kids get rattled.
3: We go to uh, a place where there's this big hairy guy in a red suit with all the lights and all the drama that goes with visiting Santa at the mall or at a store, or even at a parade or something.
9: So imagine what that's like for a child who is sensitive to sensory overload. Last year, before a holiday party for a group of children on the autism spectrum, Pat trained for what's called a low-sensory Santa.
3: It's important for every child to have that experience, to have that feeling of uh, joy and excitement.
9: Social worker Amanda Newsom at West Virginia University Medicine says the staff saw a need for more welcoming experience
11: in typical locations there's a lot of loud noises that can be very it can cause some anxiety in 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 these kind of diagnoses and then it can it can produce some behaviors from that um, so that's that's where the idea came from.
9: The idea is to give families a chance to experience Santa in their own time and in their own way.
11: So we had one girl our first year that would come up and, and just touch Santa and then run away and then come back up and, and try to sit on his lap and then run away again and slowly eventually stood next to him. She never sat on his lap, I don't think. So it just allows that time. The parents don't feel pressured. Um, they don't feel like they have to push their child to hurry up and go because there's other people waiting, you know, they they could take their time and enjoy the other activities as well.
9: Recently in a Richmond, Kentucky YMCA, chains of white paper flakes turned a workout room into a zen Santa's den. Santa Jared Raymer is a skinny, dark-haired college student wearing a baggy red suit. Sitting on a wooden rocker, not a velvet throne, he greets families brought in by a cheerful volunteer elf. Santa's- it's 45 minutes before a child goes directly to Santa. Some ignore him, some stare from a distance, and then there is Paul Smith. He comes in wearing only one shoe and quickly plops on the floor, fascinated by a bag of soft balls. Raymer majors in occupational therapy at Eastern Kentucky University. He eases away from his rocker, making a gentle approach.
8: Can I take a with you? Can I come take a picture with you? Let's smile for The camera okay? is soon
9: crouched next to the boy, and it is Santa who is giggling with joy, as the cameras capture that often elusive photo. Paul reaches out to touch Santa's hand.
14: you been
15: a good
9: boy this year. Yeah. As low sensory Santa himself might say, "Merry Christmas to all, and to all a good night."
0: For Inside Appalachia, I'm Mary Meehan. One of the most loved Christmas carols of all time, Silent Night, has a connection to West Virginia and the remote mountain town of Helvetia. The locals still sing the song in its original German language. Molly Bourne and Eric Douglas went there to get the story.
7: Smoke curls into the sky from the chimney of a small, wood frame house along the flowing middle fork of the Buchanan River. Inside, pianist and composer Jack Gibbons sits at his piano in a back room. On the walls are likenesses of his favorite composers, including Bach and Chopin. He's rehearsing a song written 200 years ago that has become one of the most recognizable Christmas carols of all time. It is also a favorite of the Helvetia Community Choir, a
3: song related to a previous owner of the very same house. I've always known the story of Silent Night. It's one of those things that, you know, you hear, hear over and over again, how they wrote it in a hurry. You know, it was, um, I think, the organ broke, and they had to, the night before, you know, had to produce a carol. And so they wrote this thing, and they played it on guitars or whatever. I mean, I don't know how much of that story is true, but that's what I've always heard about. It is an absolutely stunningly beautiful piece, and it is so simple, I and mean, it is an unbelievably simple piece.
8: As the story goes, in 1818, Father Joseph Moore, a parish priest from Austria, approached organist Franz Gruber about writing a music score for A Christmas Carol. Moore had written the lyrics a few years before, and the men planned to debut the song in the St. Nicholas Parish Church in Oberndorf, Austria. The song was Stille Nacht, or in English, Silent Night. According to published reports, sometime during World War I, Franz Gruber's nephew Hans settled in West Virginia, in Montrose, also in Randolph County. He was a doctor and moved to Helvetia after feeling threatened by locals apparently hostile toward German speakers because of the war.
7: Helvetia is the Latin name for Switzerland. The West Virginia town was founded in 1869 by a group of Swiss families who moved to these mountains after first settling in Brooklyn. According to various historical accounts of Helvetia, they sought a place to live freely, to practice art. In New York, they formed a society of Swiss or German speakers And a member who had done some land surveying in West Virginia recommended the mountain wilderness.
8: It's fitting. Jack Gibbons came to Helvetia because he loves the remoteness of the mountains, the quiet. He has a place to focus on his work without the racket of city life. Gibbons didn't know it at the time, but the house he moved into two years ago was once owned by Dr. Gruber.
3: I had no idea. I was literally, we were signing the deeds for the house, saw the name Gruber House and wondered what that was and I actually then you know looked it up on the internet and that's when I found out about the history of it and we were already here it was extraordinary it was a very happy uh, coincidence. Jack Gibbons is a world-renowned pianist and composer
7: from England. He came to West Virginia in 2010 to work as artist-in-residence at Davis and Elkins College. Even before he moved to Helvetia he had written his own version of Silent Night, a more complex composition. Still he said that doesn't make it better.
8: invites the local community choir to his home to practice for their annual Christmas concert in the local church. Of course, one of the mainstays of that concert is Silent Night.
3: The Christmas Eve service, I think, is so special. You know, where they, everyone sings Silent Night in German with, by candlelight, and it's I think it's amazing. I love the fact that Helvetia keeps this tradition going.
8: singing Silent Night in German, can be traced to Eleanor Farner Mayu, a woman known as the matriarch of Helvetia. She was the mother of Heidi Mayu Arnett, the current owner of the Hute restaurant in town. According to Joe McEnroy, a member of the community choir, it all came down to food.
13: Well, Heidi's mother uh, was a character, and uh, she in the church didn't always see eye die on things. Uh, Ever, but she did say she would she would uh, uh, feed the group at her house there after the service if we would sing a um in German.
7: For Gibbons, Silent Night is a perfect combination of heart and music, even
3: if its origins remain a bit of a mystery. We don't know much about the composer. He was a, a teacher, and, uh, and I've obviously looked at some of his other music, but that one seemed to have really... It hit the nail on the head. I mean, I, I think it was basically inspiration. I think that's what happened. And, and also the words. I mean, also not forget the words. are so really beautiful.
7: Inside Appalachia, I'm Eric Douglas,
8: and I'm Molly Warren,
7: in Helvetia, West Virginia.
0: Silent Night has always been one of my favorite Christmas carols, and I love that West Virginia connection. The music in this episode, by the way, is from the Helvetia Community Choir. It was recorded during one of their rehearsals.
16: Hi, my name is Jaden White. I am 11 years old and I live in Kimberly, West Virginia. My favorite tradition that makes me feel
5: connected is when we go to my aunt's house and we sing 12 Days of Christmas, we play a trivia game that... If you guess the question right, then you get the Christmas present that goes with your answer.
0: While the kids are out of school for winter break, families usually have more time to spend together. For some, the holiday season is a great time to hit the slopes in parts of Appalachia where they're skiing, like West Virginia, where winter sports generate an estimated $250 million annually. But as energy and environment reporter Brittany Patterson found out, climate change is creating more challenges to keep those traditions. For many people, the holidays
16: signal the start of a joyous time, snow season. It means strapping on skis or hopping onto a sled to tear into soft, fluffy powder. That's the case for Greg Corio. Corio oversees West Virginia University's Youth Development Initiative office. He helps get students of all ages outside. He's also been an avid ice climber for almost two decades.
15: The only way to describe it is it's magical. There's so many features and so many details and little knobs and little pieces and dripping waters. you're climbing up it. And, and it's like climbing up the side of Magic Kingdom's castle or just this incredible, just beautiful environment to be in.
16: He says here in West Virginia, the tight-knit ice climbing community is used to having just a small window to get out onto the ice.
15: That's why you have to drop everything and go uh, whenever it does uh, present that opportunity for us.
16: But he says that window seems to be shrinking.
15: You know, we've had several years where we haven't had any ice at all.
16: And he's not the only one who's concerned. West Virginia's quarter-billion-dollar ski industry has always had to factor in the state's variable climate. But for one resort, investing in new technology could be the key to combating the impacts of climate change. That sound is the lifeblood of West Virginia's ski industry, snowmaking.
7: Basically, if we didn't have snowmaking here, we might be able to open for... February, maybe a couple weeks in February.
16: Ty Tagmeyer is the snowmaking manager at Snowshoe Mountain Resort.
7: We generally don't get a nice, a good heavy snow until late January, February. We will get dustings in, you know, a foot at a time, but to be able to open a ski trail, we need four to five feet of natural
16: snow. Tagmire leads a team of more than a dozen guides and what he calls the art of making snow. To replicate what nature does, they take highly pressurized water and air and pipe it into a snowmaking machine, often called a snow gun. When the two elements collide, the water breaks into tiny particles. And when they are blown into below freezing air, they turn to snow. West Virginia's ski industry has always relied on snowmaking. But as the climate changes, it's becoming more important.
7: The snowmaking windows that we see, the windows of time when the temperature is low enough uh, to make snow. Have gotten shorter over the years.
16: Sean Kessel is Snowshoe's public relations manager. Snowshoe has invested more than four million dollars into newer, more efficient snowmaking machines. He says this doesn't just save money on the resort's electricity bills. It's a hedge against the impacts of climate change.
7: So we have to make as much snow as we used to, but in shorter buckets of time. And, um, and the technology is, is keeping pace with that, you know, the ability to do that. And so continuing to invest in that technology is critical.
16: Kessel takes me to see some of the new snowmaking machines. We head to Cup Run, a long, steep trail on the mountain's western-facing
15: slope. I think we've had these on since Monday afternoon, and it was grass before that. So today it's, it's Thursday, and there's almost enough snow to open it. So
16: <laughs> enough snow is an understatement. As we walk out onto the run, we drop midside deep in icy powder.
6: Okay, that might be about oh. as far as we want.
16: Cup Run is outfitted with 75 stick guns. Snow flies out of these 30-foot-high metal poles, no thicker than a pipe you might find under your kitchen sink. They're quiet enough that we can have a conversation standing right underneath them.
15: So yeah, these, um, these use a fraction of the energy that old snowmaking equipment did.
16: All told, the upgrades save an estimated 5 million kilowatts of electricity each year, or enough to power 500 homes. Some of the resort's snowmaking machines have been automated to shut off when temperatures get too warm to make quality snow. The goal is to be more nimble as snowmaking becomes ever increasingly important. But boosting climate resilience isn't top of mind for everyone who works with West Virginia's ski industry. Uh,
7: Traditionally in West Virginia, we have uh, numerous freeze-thaw cycles throughout the winter. That's just because of the um, situation, and that's not a change from years past.
16: Joe Stevens is the executive director of the trade group the West Virginia Ski Areas Association. He says the state's variable topography has always meant West Virginia ski resorts have had to rely on snowmaking to provide that reliable product skiers and snowboarders want. His job is to boost the number of visitors who will experience West Virginia's unique ski areas. Expanding summer offerings like mountain biking, hiking, ziplining, and more has helped.
7: Most resorts do offer summertime uh, activities.
16: But making ski resorts summer destinations is also another hedge against climate change, and probably a good bet. Just ask a climate scientist.
2: My name is Jake Crouch, and I'm a climate scientist at NOAA's National Centers for Environmental Information.
16: Crouch grew up in Beckley and spent his formative years skiing at Winter Place. He says if you look at the data from the last 50 years, temperatures in West Virginia have not risen as much as they have across the rest of the United States. But what has changed is how variable the temperatures can be.
2: But one thing we are seeing is that the really warm years are getting warmer And the really cold years are also getting warmer.
16: Another really important thing that is happening as a result of climate change, West Virginia is getting more precipitation. This has increased flooding. And in the near term, it could mean more snowfall for parts of the state. But Crouch says climate models also predict West Virginia will catch up with the rest of the country when it comes to temperature.
2: So we're kind of in a sweet spot right now where, you know, temperatures are warming, but they're not warming that fast for West Virginia yet that is expected to change in, in the coming decades.
16: Even warmer temperatures will become the norm, and that doesn't bode well for snow. Warming temperatures is something ice climber Corio thinks a lot about, especially as he scales sheer 80-foot tall ice formations.
15: We had several years in a row where we didn't have any ice climbing at all, and it's just uh, kind of sad, like, okay, wow, that whole season, we, it never formed up.
16: Still, at least for now, Corio eagerly awaits for temperatures to drop, and he keeps his gear ready in case the perfect conditions present themselves. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Brittany Patterson.
0: Sometimes traditions look different today than they did, say, 100 years ago. And this next tradition has apparently been around for more than a century, formed with the intent of turning a destructive tradition into something constructive— the National Audubon Society Christmas Bird Count has citizen scientists look to the skies, trees, and bird feeders to identify and count as many birds as possible. Glennis Board has more.
14: Uh, that's a junco chipping. That's what I'm hearing. It's not sharp and harsh enough to be a cardinal.
8: Yeah.
12: Mm-hmm.
14: It's it's kind of a lighter chip.
12: Bill Beatty and Jan Runyon are naturalists, educators, and birders. They recently showed me around their property in Brook County, West Virginia. Beatty told me he was brought up in a housing project in Pittsburgh. He liked plants, he says, but birds were for sissies. In 1972, though, he had to conduct a bird survey for a college course he was taking. The first day of the survey, he saw something he never noticed before.
14: There were um, eastern bluebirds all blue with the orange breast and some white underneath. And I'd never seen anything so beautiful in my life. And that moment changed me. I had to do nine surveys to qualify for enough data. But I, after that blue bird incident, I did 27.
12: <laughs> Later that year, on a January morning, Beatty joined a group of birders who were out counting as many birds as they could for the Audubon Society's annual Christmas bird count. He's participated every year since.
14: In West Virginia, we have currently, we have 20 Christmas bird count circles uh, throughout the state.
12: Larry Helgerman manages the Christmas bird count in West Virginia on behalf of the Audubon Society. He explains the count was created in response to a different holiday tradition.
7: Back in 1899,
14: people would go out after the Christmas or after the first of New Year's and they would shoot as many birds and animals as they could it was a sport
12: an ornithologist at the time frank chapman thought he'd try to start a different tradition
14: he came up with the idea of instead of shooting birds why don't we just count the birds and sort of make it a conservation thing
12: christmas day of the year 1900 27 people across the u.s and canada counted about 18,000 birds birds 90 species Last year, 77,000 people across more than 2,500 locations participated. According to the Audubon Society, it's the oldest running citizen scientist survey in the world. Jan Runyon, a birder and educator in Brook County with Beatty, says the Christmas bird count presents valuable learning opportunities for people who might just be getting into birds.
1: It's a good way to go with somebody who knows more about what's there uh, it's not overwhelming, like the spring is overwhelming with all the songs and everything like that. So it's it's an entry-level thing that you can do mm-hmm. to become be- a better birder.
12: Runyon says for someone who isn't experienced, it seems like an impossible task to differentiate between bird calls. But she says just like you can close your eyes at a family gathering and know the difference between family members' voices you can also learn to know the birds.
1: You just have to be out there and experience with them.
12: Beatty and Runyon love to be outside, especially this time of year. And it is very peaceful.
14: Now this same spot in the, later in the spring, like uh, late April through May and through June into early summer is so loud with bird songs. Because the birds sing songs to defend their territories. And that's what they do the whole time during nesting season.
12: So why would this bird count happen at this time of year not during the spring?
14: Well, they do have spring counts. Okay. Yeah, they do that. Um, and, and then we're just counting numbers of species.
12: Mm-hmm.
14: With a Christmas bird count, we're trying to determine population.
12: Beatty says... A lot has changed since he started observing more than 40 years ago.
14: It's not at all the same today. I used to, I remember going in the woods early on and we'd have what we call a fallout. There would be these birds called warblers migrating. And then when they're hungry, they just fall into a forest. When you're in a fallout, they're everywhere. I mean, just absolutely everywhere. We don't see it like we used to at all. There'll be fallouts, but they're much fewer
12: birds. Beatty explains the bird population trends gathered during the Christmas count are good environmental indicators to warn humans about various dangers. On the Audubon website now, there are even mapping tools that show how and where populations of various species have changed in the past decade. The survey's West Virginia manager, Larry Helgerman, says he's looking for more birders to participate, especially in the southern part of the state. The counts are ongoing through the first week of January. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Glennis Bord.
14: Did you hear that? Mm-hmm. Okay, that was a pileated woodpecker. Some people call it pileated. And uh, it's our biggest woodpecker.
0: I don't really know of anybody who still goes out to shoot birds around this time of year, but the National Audubon Society is still hoping that more Appalachians will make counting birds a holiday tradition. Besides, it sounds like a fun excuse to get outside and enjoy the outdoors.
6: My name is Aubrey Riston. I'm 10 years old. Every year, my aunt hosts a Christmas party. Mom decorates with a little manger and baby Jesus. The kids get to open presents and eat dinner, and then we go outside to visit all of her animals.
0: Our final story this week delves into the process of making rosettes, light, crispy, deep-fried pastries made using a floral-shaped iron mold. Mike Costello, head chef at Lost Creek Farms in lost creek west virginia recently inherited a rosette iron from his helvetian ancestors last christmas his mom gave him a box of his great-grandmother's things and inside he found the food related treasure so he carried on the tradition of making rosettes without any specific instructions but simply a passion for learning more about his ancestors and a little help from an old helvetian cookbook As Inside Appalachia Folklife reporter Caitlin Tan found out, making this delicate, sweet, tasty pastry helped bring a better connection to his roots.
17: I'm standing in Mike Costello's farmhouse kitchen in Harrison County, West Virginia. It's wide open, long windows, natural lighting, a Long Island counter cast iron skillets hang from the ceiling. Spices line the walls. A wood stove sits in the corner. It's the heart of his late 1800s farmhouse. It's a cold winter afternoon, and Mike is showing me how to make rosettes.
2: I've heard a lot of people refer to it as sort of like a, a lighter version of a funnel cake or so, like a little bit crispier, lighter. I mean, these rosettes, they are they're pretty delicate. When you pull them out of the oil, they look Like they might be more robust, but that's because the fins of the iron are, they're kind of hollow. So you have the thing that looks like uh, bigger and more dense than it is. But since those are all hollow, it's like this really kind of delicate pastry.
17: The rosette iron itself is similar to a branding iron, although much more delicate. The base is metal, floral shaped. It's the part that is actually dipped into the batter and oil. The handle sticks vertically out of the cookie cutter-like mold. Mike says the rosette can be traced back to many different immigrant cultures.
2: You know, I think rosettes were pretty common, especially in you know in this part of Appalachia because you had so many immigrants coming, not just from Switzerland, but from you know Germany or Austria-Hungary, other places where you know you see this rosette tradition show up, especially around the holidays.
17: Mike's rosette iron was gifted to him last Christmas. It's likely it was passed down from his Swiss great-grandmother, Flora. She immigrated to Helvetia when she was six.
2: I got really excited, probably more excited than I should have been about, just like this little, you know, metal floral-shaped thing with a red handle, right? But uh, to me, it was much more than just like the tool. It was sort of that piece of my past that I'd been longing for. Like I knew that there was this you know, piece of my family's history that was up in the mountains around and We just kind of all of a sudden had something tangible to trace it back to.
17: Mike shows me photos of Flora. She's somewhat of a mystery woman to him. She passed away before her history could be fully documented. But what he does know is Flora was an excellent farmer and cook.
2: To have this piece of our heritage that if there was someone you could point to and be like, who's doing the farm-to-table the real deal way? You know, it was like, this is it right here. You know, this is... She's literally gro- standing, with her, yeah, her
17: standing with her cows and her chickens. Yeah, standing with her
2: cows and her chickens, standing with her amazing, prolific crop of pole beans that I see here in her kitchen apron.
17: Flora was doing farm-to-table before it was cool. <laughs>
2: before it was cool, Flora was doing farm-to-table in Braxton County, West Virginia. That's right.
17: So using the rosette iron passed down to him, Mike shows me how to make the pastries. He's using a traditional recipe from Helvetia. He starts with the batter by cracking three eggs. And he pours in half a pint of cream. The recipe calls for medium cream, so he's using half and
8: half.
2: Yeah, I want to get the eggs and the cream pretty well beaten together. And I'm going to add a little bit of flour. I'm going to add about one cup of flour to this. So I'm gonna mix this up, and what we're looking for is actually for the batter to be pretty light, and this is a little bit maybe heavier than I want it to be, so I'm gonna add a little bit more of that cream.
17: The mixture should be smooth and light, more like a pancake batter than a cake batter. After mixing, Mike always adds one secret ingredient.
2: You know, you need to put a little bit of uh, bourbon, just a little splash of bourbon into your batter. Um, And I honestly don't know if I've noticed much of a difference when I put it in there, but it's kind of fun to carry on the...
17: Maybe for good uh, luck. Yeah,
2: for good luck. You know, I've heard some folks say it makes it a little bit crispier, and I'll take it.
17: He then heats up lard in a skillet. It's about three quarters of an inch deep. Mike says you want the oil about the depth of the flower base on the iron.
2: That's a cat. Frida, she loves rosettes. So I'm going to try one out here. Okay. I've got my iron in this uh, hot lard, and I'm just going to dip it in this batter. And you can hear it. Uh, that's it adhering to the to the iron. Again, I'm trying to avoid. It coming up over the top of the iron so that when I put it in it slides right off.
17: That's the sound of the batter covered iron being dipped into the hot lard. It's almost like a blossoming flower. It is, coming yeah, up.
2: very much so. And that one's getting brown enough that you' probably go ahead and take it out. It
3: doesn't and take literally much like time. 10, yeah, like yeah, seconds. I know
2: they're so soft and so so delicate that they fry up really quickly.
17: The end result is a golden, crisp, airy pastry in the shape of a flower. It has eight petals that are hollow, which add to the delicate intricacy of the finished pastry.
2: You know when you get it right, because you can hear the sizzle of the batter, just like that. You know, that's when you know it's like really sticking to it pretty well.
17: And then all the the oil kind of bubbles up over oh, yeah. it. While we fry the batter, Mike is reminded of making Christmas cookies as a kid with his grandmother, Betty Williams.
2: She had a little kind of step stool, like a th- two or three tier step stool that my brother and I would get on because we couldn't reach the countertop but that's a lot of what I think back to in terms of the holidays and tradition is you know being in that kitchen and making those cookies and wanting to of keep that up in some way so now that she's gone as well this is it's kind of like in a way sort of satisfies that desire for me to be a little kid again and spend time in my grandma's kitchen making these christmas cookies because <laughs> it's yeah. like almost the same
17: in a matter of minutes i notice a plate towering with rosettes like to point out that we have what would you say two dozen
2: Oh God, we have so many rosettes right now. (laughs) We've run out of room on the plate and we still have a ton of batter left.
17: While they're still hot, Mike adds some sweet toppings.
2: First, I'm just going to put like a basic powdered sugar on. Uh, I'm going to do a little cinnamon and sugar mix. And then uh, I'll have some with some sorghum. And then, you know, one of the things that goes pretty well With that sorghum, that sorghum is so sweet, but I use a little bit of this Jagu Dickinson salt from the Charleston area.
17: Mike grew the sorghum on his farm for the syrup he's using. It adds an unexpected, earthy flavor. And then the salt marries all the flavors together. But the best part of the process is pouring a cup of coffee, and eating a crispy, delicate, sweetness-that-melts-in-your-mouth rosette on a cold winter afternoon. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Caitlin Tan in Lost Creek,
0: West Virginia. And You can find the Helvetian recipe for rosette batter online at wvpublic.org. On this show, we visited a town that preserved traditions their ancestors brought as immigrants to central Appalachia. We also heard about a tradition that someone besides your grandma is encouraging you to learn, bird counting. It's just incredible to discover that someone had such a clever strategy to hold on to parts of the tradition that likely created many family bonds, but let go of the destructive act of killing birds just for fun. My traditions look way different from when I was a child, and it's hard to know if I'm holding on to and letting go of the right traditions, but I'm finding that letting go of some of those traditions doesn't mean I'm letting go of the love I have for my loved ones. Thanks so much for listening to the show. Cheers to 2019. Until next week, thanks for joining me as we journey throughout Appalachia. We had help producing Inside Appalachia this week from Fred Salzman and Mary Meehan from the Ohio Valley Resource. Music in today's show was provided by Jack Gibbons and the Helvetia Community Choir. Roxy Todd is our producer Eric Douglas is our associate producer Our executive producer is Jesse Wright And he also edited our show this week Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens Molly Bourne is our web editor You can find us online on Twitter At InAppalachia. Appalachia You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at wpublic.org Or address your letters to InsideAppalachia at West Virginia Public Broadcasting 600 Capitol Street Charleston, West Virginia 25301 If you'd like to listen to any part of this episode again, don't forget you can subscribe or download all of our stories at wvpublic.org. And you can find Inside Appalachia on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jessica Lilly. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting.